0: The grass withers and the flower fades. Surely the peoples are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We confess we have tried to feed our insatiable appetites this week on the things of the world. When your word says that man does not live on bread alone, But on every word that comes from your mouth. So we pray now, would you satisfy us this morning with your word? Would you put it into our hearts? Would you make it taste delicious to our spirits? Make it satisfy the longings of our souls. And may it motivate us to approach you afresh every day that you might fill all that is lacking in us. For Jesus' sake, amen. I think it's safe to say that we all try to normally avoid circular reasoning in arguments, in rhetoric, in our writing. The one exception is when we're talking about the circle of life. Then all bets are off because, of course, we're wrestling with the circularity or repetitiveness of life in a way that we all kind of understand. It's common to all of us. And this is all the more true if your name is Elton John. Who writes... Some of us fall by the wayside, and some of us soar to the stars, and some of us sail through our troubles, and some have to live with the scars. There's far too much to take in here, more to find than can ever be found, but the sun rolling high through the sapphire sky keeps great and small on the endless round in the circle of life. It's the wheel of fortune, the leap of faith, the band of hope, till we find our place on the path unwinding, in the circle of life. The great philosopher, Elton John, reflecting on the circle of life. That is the gospel according to the Lion King. To find your place in that circle and never take more than you give. Now that, of course, is not the same as the gospel according to the Bible But Elton John has stumbled on some important truth. People don't all walk the same path, which can seem unfair and confusing at times. There's more to see and know in life than we can possibly wrap our heads around. But we're all living on the same endless round. Endless round. That kind of pensive poetry would sound familiar to the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Maybe the preacher of Ecclesiastes wishes Elton John would have footnoted him in his song. Long before Elton John, the preacher himself took a good, hard look at life on the endless round. What did he see? This morning we are going to study together Ecclesiastes 1, 1-11. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 1, 1-11. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And we're going to think about the preacher, the problem, the pattern, the point, and the promise. Those words will kind of structure our time together in God's Word this morning. So first, the preacher himself. The preacher himself... The book identifies the author, but it doesn't name him. The preacher translates the Hebrew word kohelet, gatherer, collector. He's a collector of observations and conclusions from those observations. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So he's identified as in a kind of dual way. He's the preacher, the gatherer, the collector, the observer, the note-taker, the journalist. But the author is also referred to as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's usually taken to be Solomon, but where Proverbs mentions Solomon by name, here, that's not so. Son of David is more generic, so some scholars think this is a transparent royal Fiction. In other words, the author is not trying to deceive anybody. He's just taking on a royal persona, what conservative commentator Derek Kidner calls a super Solomon figure. He wants us to understand that he is treating life as if he were Solomon to show what the quest for wisdom is like when you have all the resources and wisdom at your disposal. So he identifies in two ways. Kohelet, the preacher, the gatherer, the observer, and the king. So this single author in two roles or two personas, two titles, is arguing with himself throughout the entire book. Will his observations negate his theology Will his observations that he's collecting negate his theology as a son of David, king in Jerusalem? Or will his theology interpret his observations? As gatherer, he's gathering empirical observations from the way the world is as he looks at it. From what he sees... The empiricist, the observer in him, says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The wise king in him, however, holds on to God's wisdom and law. The distinction between righteousness and wickedness. And that part of him says, by the end of the whole book, Fear God and keep his commandments. This single author, then, is wrestling with these two perspectives. He's trying to reconcile them all the way through the book. So he's saying, I see this in the world as I look at it, as I can see it, as I observe it. But I know that from Scripture as king in Jerusalem. So how does he reconcile his empirical observations of the world, on the one hand, with what he knows from God's law and Israel's wisdom, on the other hand? Kohelet, as observer, is arguing with himself as a king of faith. In short, it's the tension between trying to live by sight and trying to live by faith in the same person. When you're living in a fallen world that you still believe is governed by a sovereign, righteous, holy God. It's the tension of trying to be honest with what you see in the world while you still believe in the God of Scripture. The tension of those two perspectives is summarized in the two ways the author identifies himself. Kohelet and king. Preacher and ruler. Practical observer of fallen reality and righteous ruler who rules according to God's wisdom and who rules accountable to God's law. Single author arguing with himself. Based on holding two seemingly contradictory perspectives. in tension. When I look at the world I see one thing. But when I read God's word. I trust that the vanity I see. Is governed by this wise and righteous sovereign God. That I cannot see. Much less can I understand. So as one writer put it. In reality, the preacher, the observer, all is vanity. In truth, everything is a gift from God. That's the tension of Ecclesiastes. He's holding those both together. The problem of the book begins in verse 2. And we'll read all the way from verse 2 to verse 11, just to let it speak for itself. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation comes and a a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already been done in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You feel this sense of frustration in them, don't you? The problem of the book then, second point of the sermon, the problem of the book, is not how do you make sense of the world in a secular, as a secularist or an atheist. That's not what he's doing. Kohelet is not impersonating an atheist, secularist, humanist, scientific naturalist and refuting that worldview. That's not what he's doing. After all, atheism wasn't even in vogue either in Solomon's day or during the exile when some Christians think it was written. You are either a monotheist, one God, or a polytheist, many gods. In ancient times. And yes, the fool did say in his heart, there is no God. That's true. Psalms addresses that. But that was the exception that proved the ancient rule. Only fools think there's no God. So the author's not trying to make sense of reality without God. Nor is he trying to expose secular humanism or atheism as empty worldviews. He would think that those are empty worldviews. But that's not what he's doing in Ecclesiastes. After all, he mentions God as creator, Elohim, 40 times in just 12 chapters. Kohelet is not saying that reality is confusing apart from God or from a humanist perspective. That's not what he means by under the sun. Many people take under the sun to be a limited secular perspective as opposed to above the sun, God's heavenly perspective. But under the sun is better taken as inclusive of all people who are living. Under the sun is the land of the living. Everywhere the sun shines. Everywhere. On this side of the grave, everywhere you look, wherever the sun shines, life is like this. And life is like this, or at least looks like this, even when you believe in God as a creator. Even when you're a Jewish monotheist who believes in the law's distinction between righteousness and wickedness. I mean, I don't think Kohelet would mention Elohim 40 times in 12 chapters if his whole point is to describe life without Elohim. You know how many times Elohim is mentioned in Esther? Goose egg. Zero. And nobody tries to make a case that the book of Esther is trying to make sense of the world from a secularist or atheistic point of view. So that's not what Kohelet is doing either in Ecclesiastes. Only chapter 4 and chapter 10 lack any mention of Elohim. Every other chapter mentions him. So the author remains a theist all the way through, which contributes to the problem and heightens the tension. The problem is not that life feels enigmatic and confusing and senseless and absurd without God in the picture. It's that when you look around, when you observe the world, when you do your empirical study, when you walk by sight, even as a God-fearer, it's hard to reconcile what you see with the character and ways of God as biblical wisdom and law present Him to be and as you believe Him to be. That's hard. That's, that's hard. That's the problem. God is good. God is wise. God is righteous. God is faithful. God is effective, sovereign, powerful, in control. And the world does not look as if such a God governs it. Even though the author believes such a God does govern it, and he's holding on to that belief all the way through So that's what we would call messed up. (laughs) That's messed up, right? It looks ridiculous. And I know God is not ridiculous. God is the opposite of ridiculous. So Kohelet is looking at the world as a God-fearing empiricist, an observer. He's looking around at the world, the way the world works. He's going by what he sees while he's still holding on to his belief in God. And the problem is, is that the world does not work the way Kohelet would expect it to work if Elohim is who Kohelet knows and believes him to be. If God is, and he's the kind of God I learned about in Jewish kindergarten, then why do I look around and see the world as it is? So again, Kohelah is not walking a mile in the secularist shoes or speaking behind the mask of an atheist or applying raw autonomous reason to decipher life without taking God into account. From the outset, in chapter 1, verse 13, he himself admits it is an unhappy business that who has given the children of man? God. God. It is an unhappy business that Elohim has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's saying that God has done something to the world and even to humanity that makes man's business in the world unhappy. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does he mean by that? The word for vanity is a picture word. It's vapor, mist, breath. I mean, can you imagine trying to translate it like that? Of all is... That's what he's saying. And the question is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? In the Old Testament, that word has got a range of meanings based on context. It can indicate nothingness, ineffectiveness, or brevity, briefness. Idols are often called hebelim, hebel, vapor, breath, mist, nothing. Idols, nothings. The help of foreign armies is ineffective or worthless. Hebel, vain. The servant of the Lord complains in Isaiah 49.4, I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity, futility, nothingness, ineffectiveness. Isaiah 49.4. nine four. In Jeremiah 16.18, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless, habel things in which there is no profit. Same word for vanity in Ecclesiastes. But in each of those cases, whether it's the nothingness of idols, the worthlessness of relying on foreign armies, or the apparent failure of the servant of the Lord, there's a perceived a perceived ridiculousness, an absurdity to it. There's a senselessness to it. There's a lack of fit between expectation and reality. Oh, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. I thought that would work a totally different way. That's what all those uses have in common. It's senseless to worship idols and rely on foreign armies. That's silly. That's not good. It's useless. It's absurd. Why would you do that? There's no sense to it. Those idols are nothings. They're unreliable. They're useless. They're worthless. They're futile. And Kohelet breathes the frustration, not just of vanity in the sense of superficiality, or brevity, or worthlessness, he breathes a frustration of absurdity, of senselessness. This is emotional for him. It's very hard to read Ecclesiastes dispassionately, or just kind of with, with this kind of intellectual, philosophical attitude. No, 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 that, that's not how he's talking. He's frustrated about this. There's a what-in-the-worldness, to Kohelet's attitude as an observer of a senseless reality governed by a sovereign God. And by using the same word five times in the opening statement, it's like he can't say it emphatically enough. What then is the absurdity? It's the question of verse 3. This is where he locates the absurdity of life, at least initially. What does a man gain? By all the toil at which he toils under the sun. That's a rhetorical question that Kohelet thinks you can't answer. What's a man gain? You tell me. Can you? I don't think you can. You spend your whole life scratching out a living. Taking all that time and trouble. And what do you really have to show for it, man? What do you got to show for it? How are you really ahead? How are you yourself really any different? You're still you, aren't you? After all that, you're still you. You're no different. Did you really change the world? Like you thought you were going to do when you were 16? What's your new bottom line from all your blood, sweat, and tears? And how do you feel about it? Are you really in the green? Is that how the world works? Let's take a good, hard, honest look at this world, Kohelet says, and let's see how the world works. Because as the world works, so humanity works. As the world goes, so goes humanity in that world. And the pattern looks demoralizing in verses 4 through 11. The pattern, third point, the pattern. He starts with the generations. A generation goes, dies off, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What do you really gain out of it? Whole generations pass, yet the earth remains unchanged. No one's changing the world No one is saving the world. No one is destroying the world. The world is just the same as it always was. And it works in just the same way, with just the same mechanisms and patterns, no matter which generation leases the acreage. All the hardship, all the trouble, all the self-exertion, self-assertion, all the misfortune and worry of all the generations changes nothing. The earth is still round. (laughs) It's still spinning on its axis, orbiting the sun day after day, year after year, just like it was doing when God first created Adam and Eve. So if none of the blood, sweat and tears of all the generations changes the way the world turns then what in the world? I mean, this is ridiculous. The idea of no gain or profit seems echoed in verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So generations come, generations go. Generations go, and then later generations come. And later generations remember little to nothing of former generations. This is even more acute in our own age when we assume that recent is better than ancient. Modern is better than pre-modern. History is replaced in schools by what? Social studies. I didn't learn history in 7th grade. I learned social studies in 7th grade. I mean, sure, you might remember your granddad because you knew him, but what about your great grandparents? What about your great great grandparents? What about your great 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 grandparents? Do you even know their names? Man, you're related to them and you don't even know them. You have no idea. They've faded. History is seldom remembered, much less understood. Do you even remember what happened? Much less can you interpret the meaning of what happened under God's sovereign providence? How did he use that event? You don't even remember it. Legacy is a mirage. You talk about legacy giving, legacy saving. I'm going to, oh, what a legacy to give all this to my children. they ain't going to remember you. Not according to Ecclesiastes. They'll be grateful for your money, but they'll forget you after just a little while. And all this forgetfulness is the reason that anyone ever thinks anything really new actually happens at all. It's just because you didn't remember, no, something like this already happened before. You just didn't remember it. It's not that innovation is not real. Yes, humanity invented the wheel, the aqueduct, the printing press, the computer, Kohelet will give you all that. Humanity invented the satellite, the cell phone. We'll even grant for the sake of argument that Al Gore invented the internet. Okay, we'll give you that. Invention is real. Innovation is real. Technology is real. We're not Luddites. But the point of there's nothing new under the sun is simply to recognize that the same categories of events happen over and over and over and over and over again, no matter what the inventions of man do. All the medical technology in the world has not stopped death. People still die. Life is still confusing, no matter how nice of a smartphone you have. Your smartphone doesn't solve all your problems. It kind of causes a few of them, doesn't it? Birth, marriage, education, war, love, life, death, transportation, communication, shelter, immorality, idolatry, theft, murder, coveting. It's all still here. It's just in a different form. The more things change, the more they stay the same. What, after all, does your cell phone enable you to do? It enables you to indulge your consumerism and your greed and your lust and your envy and your pride. The sun, the great star that marks all our time by running its circuits, appears only to be serving time itself. (laughs) You're just a time server. The sun itself is watching the clock. Round and round and round and round and round and round and round it goes. What's it actually accomplishing up there? Going up and down, back and forth, hurrying east to west, east to west, east to west. The sun only ever appears to be on its way back from where it started out to begin with. Round and round and round it goes up there in the sky, phenomenologically, as it looks, as it appears. What in the world good is that? The sun looks like it's wearing itself out, just like the generations wear themselves out. And for what? The sun has nothing new to show for it. The sun's not getting bigger and stronger and brighter. It's not getting more eternal. It's stuck on a cosmic, and it's not getting anywhere. It is stuck on a cosmic merry-go-round, a circular treadmill. It rises and shines, rises and shines, sets and fades, and then it runs in the dark all the way back to where it began, huffing and puffing to do it all over again tomorrow. And the next day, and the day, that, and the day after 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 that. World without end. What in the world? The wind. Same thing with the wind. Verse six. Just as the sun goes east to west, east to west, east to west, the wind goes south to north, south to north, south to north. Coming and going, leaving and returning. The wind blows to the north, goes around to the blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and round goes the wind, and on its circuit, the wind returns. The wind's just swirling. What? You ever want to ask the wind, where are you going? Where? Are you going anywhere? I thought I just saw you. I, you were just coming from this way, and now you're coming from that way again. What did you do over there? It's not making any progress. It's just circulating endlessly. And as if that were not disillusioning enough, look at the rivers and the seas. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea isn't full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. What is true of the sun and the wind is true of the sea. It's all a big circle, east to west, south to north, stream to sea, again and again and again and again and again. And And, and that's not dependent on what worldview you have or whether you believe in God or not. That's just true. That's just what you see. And while there's a comfort to the regularity and predictability of it all, there's a monotony to it. It's tedious, it's boring, it's tiresome. It's almost loathsome again and again and again and again and again. We literally live the same day over and over and over. The wind swirling its way nowhere as fast as it can, only to end up where it began. There's no end point, no goal, no aim, no target, no objective, no finish line. How in the world can I live in a world like that? (laughs) Is this what I am supposed to learn about reality from looking at it? Am I simply to learn that nothing is going anywhere or getting anywhere? Because that's what I gather from the looks of it. And that's what I feel in my heart in my life. Sun, wind, river, seas. I don't feel any closer to God when I look at this. I'm sitting out here at the sunset, and I'll enjoy the sunset, but every single sunset fades to black. It never lasts. And there'll be another one tomorrow. And another one, another one, another one. So what was this one special? I feel worn out by it all. The novelty of creation is quickly wearing off. Creation is getting old. And it's not just getting old chronologically, it's getting old existentially. It, just, it gets old looking at it all the time. Same old thing, same old thing. All this, though, is consistent with Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens do not declare their own glory. Whose glory do they declare? They declare God's glory. Here in Ecclesiastes 1, The heavens are declaring their own absurdity, their own circularity, their own senselessness in and of themselves, even as created by God. You look at creation for what you can see in creation and all you see is the senselessness of repeated patterns. The heavens do declare the glory of God. They do declare God's beauty, majesty, scope, intricacy, power, sovereignty, transcendence, knowledge, supremacy, creativity. They display all of that about God. He's the one that built this. But the heavens also declare the senseless circularity of this world in and of itself, even though it is created by God. The cosmos is not ultimate cosmos has no glory in and of itself there is an inherent dissatisfaction built into the very workings of creation sun wind seas generations there's something about the way the world turns the way the wind blows that makes us dissatisfied with life in this world the way the world turns is not satisfying to us precisely because it turns it's circular The whole cosmos is literally going nowhere fast. That is what Kohelet notices when he looks around, when he looks up, when he stops to think. It occurs to him, this world is going nowhere fast. It's scurrying its way to nowhere. Now, modernity loves the image of a journey, right? We love the image of a journey. We started to talk like that as Christians because we want to relate to that journey language and culture out there. Oh, I'm on a journey. This journey is great. I'm on a journey. Where are you on your journey? I'm here on my journey. We like to talk to each other like that, right? We like to talk to each other like that so much that we name our cars after that kind of thing. The Dodge Journey. The Honda Odyssey. The Nissan Quest. The Nissan Pathfinder. Ford Expedition. Chevy Trailblazer. I mean, we can't get enough of it. The problem is, this world is not on a journey. It's more like an errand. The same errand. The same chore. Over and over and over and over and over again. Nissan Errand doesn't have quite the same ring to it, does it? I drive an errand. I drive a Ford Monotony. I drive a Honda Aimless. A Toyota Repetition. An Acura Chore. We don't name our cars that. Nobody wants to drive an Aimless. That's pathetic. No, I want to be able to say, I drive a Quest. Because it represents my journey because I'm going somewhere in my quest. But the sun is on an errand. <laughs> the wind is just swirling around. The cosmos is not headed to a destination that it hasn't yet reached that it's really excited about getting to. It's moving in another circle. So where's the sense and the circularity of all things? everything's going nowhere and it all seems in such a hurry to get there where's the sense in how the cosmos runs where's the satisfaction in it all it gets old the circle of life is pointless that's what it looks like and when you believe in god you're like wait a minute god how can the circle of life be pointless but it is i mean it's a circle there is no point I'm struggling here. What is the point? What is Kohelet's point? Verse 8, fourth point of the sermon. The generations, the sun, the wind, the sea are all just analogies for the dissatisfaction of the human heart in verse 8. All things, or words, all the things you could say about the circularity of life All this is full of weirdness. I'm getting tired of talking about it. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. There it is. You get so tired of the cosmic rut that you run out of words for talking about it. But that's because it resonates a little too deeply, doesn't it? It's too close for comfort. I don't want to admit it, but I can't avoid it. My heart is just like that sea. I can drink in all the sights and sounds under the sun. And my heart will not be or feel a single ounce fuller for any of it. Pick your poison. Productivity, profit, Prosperity, clothes, cars, computers. Kohelet's getting there. He'll get there in chapter 2. Whether you're into commercialism or competition, philosophy or fun, academics or athletics, wine, women, and song, gossip and slander, whether you're a foodie or a fitness freak, look at it all, listen to it all, take it all in, and still your heart will not rise a millimeter above Human sea level. You're not getting fuller from any of that. Derek Kidner said, like the ocean, our senses are fed and fed, but never filled. I can never see enough spectacle. I can never marvel at enough grandeur. I can never be amazed enough. I can never be enthralled enough. I can never lust at enough beauty. I can never covet enough money. I can never be impressed enough. The sunset always fades tonight. And I can't hear enough either. The song can never be loud enough or last long enough or be entertaining enough. You ever notice that about music? You find some cool guitar riff or some beautiful song or melody that you love, and you're like, that, that's only like three and a half minutes, man. Or even if it's like five or six or seven minutes, a particularly long song, you're like, yeah, but I kind of didn't really like that middle part there, and, but I really like that part. I just can't hear enough of what I want to hear. It's not just music. The news doesn't stay new. It'll be current. It's going to be yesterday's news tomorrow. The gossip loses its juiciness. The compliments can't come quickly enough. and Before long, our ears feel empty. Give me more distractions. Give me more praise for self. Give me more slander for others. Give me more noise to drown out this deafening silence in my heart. If there's one proverb that still resonates with Kohelet, it's Proverbs 27:20. "Shield and Abaddon are never satisfied and never satisfied are the eyes of man. That's almost become Kohelet's life verse. And it's a proverb. The only thing this world does for my appetites is tantalize them and aggravate them. The world awakens and excites my appetites only to frustrate and disappoint them ever feel like that when i can sense that my senses are made to enjoy more than this world is able to show and tell i want to see more i want to hear more i want to be more but when what 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 can i look at in this world that's going to satisfy my eyes what can i listen to that's going to fill up my ears Is it not absurd that my desires, my senses, my appetites, my longings have so much capacity that the world is not enough to fill them? That's absurd. Why is that? Charles Bridges, a pastor from 150 years ago, said it this way, all is therefore utterly inefficient for the great end of man's true happiness. It only enlarges his desires in the endeavor to gratify them your desires think about it you eat a big meal big supper your stomach you feel full for a while your stomach expands many of us are familiar with that we go to bed have a hard time sleeping we get up next morning are you full no you're hungry why your stomach expanded that's why you ate all that food and now you're hungry you're more hungry than you were when you ate the food But Bridges goes on to say, It leaves behind an aching void, a blank that it cannot fill up. Man cannot find in the world that which he aims at. It's made a show of contentment, but performed nothing of that which it seemed to promise. That's the world. Welcome to your life in this world. It's this endless appetite for seeing and hearing the reason This is the reason we scroll through our social media feeds, isn't it? Our internet searches, our YouTube and TikTok videos, one image after another, after another, after another, after another. Scroll, 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 scroll. You get tendonitis in your thumb. You're scrolling so much. The eye is never satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. It's not just consumerism or gossip or lust or acquisitiveness or uh, the entertainment ethos. It's that... We are never satisfied with observing these kinds of absurdities in the world. We can't stop looking at the world like Kohelet looks at it. What in the world? What's the deal with that? What's with that if God is? Huh? We're gluttons for this nonsense. We keep trying to find ultimacy in the things that are not Ultimate, we keep trying to make sense of the nonsense to rationalize what is so clearly irrational to us and to comprehend the incomprehensible when we know that there is an incomprehensible God out there. And it's like we have an appetite for that too. I've got to figure this out. If I just work out my theology of creation better, we say. I just need to read a book on a Christian theology of creation. That'll do it. If I just work out my answer to the problem of evil better. Why do bad things happen to good people from a Christian perspective? Maybe I just need a a good apologist. If I just work out my end times theology better. If I really just know where all this is going, then I'll be fine. Then it'll make sense. If I just have a better theology of work and vocation. Then, then I won't feel frustrated by the nonsense because then the nonsense will make perfect sense. Will it? Because it didn't for Kohelet. That appetite though, the appetite to see the definitive argument, to hear the definitive podcast on the meaning of life, that is just as insatiable as anything else because we have a drive to impose human order on an inhumane world. And that also, Kohelet will say, is ultimately unachievable. Yet these out of this world, disappointed by everything in this world, disproportionate to anything in this world appetites, these very appetites are the evidence for the God who made crooked what we cannot make straight. Who put those appetites there? Who made them so big? God did why are they so big? Why are my appetites so big? Because the only one who can satisfy them is this God. That's why. The world is too small for these appetites, which is the indication to you that God made you for something bigger than this world. These appetites are his fingerprints left at the scene of our creation. Listen to Stephen Charnock in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God. The evidence of a God results from the vastness of the desires in man and the real dissatisfaction he has in everything below himself. Man has a boundless appetite after some sovereign good. Our desires approach infiniteness and our desires pursue not only what we know or what we have a glimpse of, but what we find wanting in what we already enjoy. That sentence moves me. Your, your desire, what you want is something that you find lacking in something you already love doing or hearing or thinking about or watching. You want more of what's lacking in that enjoyment that you already have. The soul of man finds an imperfection in everything here, Charnot goes on to say, and cannot scrape up a perfect satisfaction and happiness. In the highest fruitions of worldly things, the soul is still pursuing something else, which speaks a, def- which speaks a defect in what it already has. You got the promotion. You got the bonus. And immediately what? Your next expectation is and and what else is that all the bonus i'm gonna get sure would be nice to get another one get your tax return ah wonderful and what else might i have to look forward to The world, Charnot goes on to say, may afford a happiness for our dust, the body, but not for the inhabitant in it, the soul. Whence should the soul of man have those desires then? How came it to understand? How, How did my soul come to understand that something is still wanting to make its nature more perfect? How do I know that I want something else to make me feel more content and happy and fulfilled? How do I even know that? How did that desire even get there? If there were not in my soul some notion of a more perfect being God which can give it rest this boundless desire did not have its origin in man himself listen to this argument Charnock nothing would render itself restless (laughs) that's a wonderful argument if you made yourself if yourself made yourself if nature made you if nature made nature would nature really make itself restless no of course not Nothing makes itself restless. That's stupid. That's self-defeating. Something above the bounds of this world implanted those desires after a higher good and made mankind restless in everything else. And since the soul can only rest in that which is infinite, there is something infinite for it to rest in. Yes. Since nothing in the world, though a man had the whole world, Can give it satisfaction, there is something above the world that alone is capable to give man satisfaction. Otherwise, the soul would always be without it, and the soul would be more in vain than any other creature. Man, if there's not something to satisfy the eternal appetite of your heart, you are, of all people, most absurd and in vain. Vanity of vanities, you are vanity. If there's not a God who satisfies your eternal appetites. There is therefore some infinite being that can alone give contentment to the soul and this is God. And that goodness which implanted such desires in the soul would not do it to no purpose. The God who implanted those desires in your soul that you can't find satisfied in this world, He would not implant that desire in your soul to no effect. He would not mock that desire or that soul in giving that desire without intending the pleasure of enjoyment for you. God gave you that infinite desire for Him because He intends to fulfill it with Himself, not with something in this world you can buy or experience or have or drink, or eat, or do. In other words, there is a built-in penultimacy to this world. Ultimacy, greatest good. Penultimate, next to greatest good. (laughs) Right? It's, It's not ultimate. The world is not ultimate. The world is not the greatest good. God did create everything good. He created everything very good. But very good is still not the highest good, is it? Very good is just very good, but it's not the best. God, God is the greatest good. And God built the world and put man into this very good world to show man that as good as the world is, the world is not the greatest good. Life in this world is not the greatest good there is. Life in this world is not the greatest good good there is. If you don't get that through your heart, you can't be a Christian. And you'll never die for Christ because you still think life in this world is the greatest good. And you will never give it up. Life in this world is to be enjoyed, taken by the horns, maximized, fulfilled, filled. But this life in this world, good as it is, is not going to be filling or satisfying to your soul. It was never meant to be because your soul is eternal and this life in this world is not. So it is that our passage indirectly indirectly refutes religious pantheism. If this is how the world as God made it works and if this is how humanity works, then this world is nothing to worship in itself. This world is not God. This world is not worthy of the name God. Now, creation care is one thing. It's good to steward the earth, but to try to to spiritualize environmentalism or reify nature with a kind of Mother Earth-ism Ignores the circular nature of creation as God Himself created. After all, what did God create all things out of? What did He create all things out of? Nothing! How vain is that? He created the whole world out of nothing. And now you're gonna try to seek your soul's eternal good out of what was created out of nothing? Vanity of vanities says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Finally, the promise, the promise. There is an innate futility to creation. The circular motions of the sun and the wind, the ever-filling but never-filled seas are like that by design of God. The earth did not begin spinning on its axis and orbiting the sun as a result of Adam's fall into sin, God created the earth to spin on its axis and orbit the sun. Same with the whirling of the winds, the stability of the sea levels, even though all rivers are constantly flowing into the seas, God created it like that so that we would not worship the creation but the creator as the greatest good. Only God's infinite spirit can satisfy the infinite human soul made in his image. So when we try to fill our eyes and ears with the knowledge of good and evil... Apart from God, God made good on his threat to bring death and curse to the ground. And ever since, creation has not only been spinning and orbiting incessantly, as it did before we sinned, creation has also been groaning under the corruption of our sin. But Jesus, as promised, stepped into our futility, our nonsense, our absurdity, and he experienced it. He suffered that nonsense and absurdity himself. He suffered as the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us back to God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Absurdity of absurdities that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Was said of him, through the voice of Isaiah's suffering servant, I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. Isaiah forty nine four. Jesus labored in public ministry during his, the prime of his life. He was cut down, and what did he have to show for it in the end? He said in Isaiah fifty three one, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord even been revealed? Jesus himself ended his life on this earth, having lived in sinless righteousness. And yet, what did he have to show for it? What did the man Christ Jesus gain by all his toil at which he toiled under the sun? He died homeless, penniless, friendless. Yet by his wounds, we have been healed. His death was not in vain. God vindicated his righteous life and his innocent death by raising him bodily from the dead three days after he died. And in doing so, Jesus became the firstborn of the new creation. True, there is nothing new under the sun. Humanity simply repeats the same kinds of things it's always done. But God said in Isaiah 43, 19, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. In Jesus' death and resurrection, God would accomplish a new creation and a new exodus. He said in Isaiah 65, 17, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her peoples to be a gladness. Jesus has made us something new in ourselves. He made A new covenant in His blood, which we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. And for all those who trust in Jesus and turn from their sins, they are in Christ, and anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God. Friends, if all this is true, then how much more should we listen when Jesus asks us, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world And lose his soul. What are you really gaining from this world? Are your appetites any more satisfied now than they were a year ago? You got the nicer car, the nicer house, the bigger TV, the better computer, the faster processor, the nicer phone. So, what? Are you a different person because of it? But the end of faith in Christ is life and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Peter said in Acts 3, the times of refreshing are coming from the presence of the Lord and God will send the Christ appointed for us whom heaven has already received until the time of the restoring of all things. There's hope. There's the promise. Until then, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Even we who have God's Spirit, we groan when we look at the world and when we look at ourselves. How much more was Kohelet groaning? And why do we groan when we have the Spirit? The same reason Kohelet groaned, because we know this world is not the way it's supposed to be, and it's not the way it used to be, And it's not the way it's going to be when Jesus comes back to make all things right and new. That's why we groan. We groan not because we are not Christians. We groan precisely because we are Christians. We know what to groan about. And yet we do not always know what to do with these groanings or how to groan well. But that's okay. God knows. That's why He sent His Spirit into our hearts to intercede for us with groanings too deep for words. We groan Under the remaining effects of sin, we groan under the confusion and absurdity of senseless violence, of apparently fruitless work and ministry, of the cosmic rut that we see and feel day after day after day. But remember that just as the old world was destroyed by water with the flood, so the present world is stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment. And since all things in this senseless world are thus to be destroyed, what sort of people ought you to be, ought we to be? And holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And until that day, we sing with our brother William Cooper who wrote of God's mysterious ways 350 years ago, "'Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace.'" Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we have looked around at the senselessness of the world, and at times we have blamed you, we have criticized you, forgive us. Help us to trust that you know what you are doing and that you are God all-wise and that you are making all things new in Christ that you will come back and you will make right every wrong. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.